is up, Death Nerds? Welcome to the first No Better Death mini-sode. Uh, this is a test episode for an idea that I had, that idea being making mini-sodes, pretty self-explanatory. I'm just looking for a way to get the listeners through the slump between main episodes, and I thought a mini-episode every two weeks might be the solution. Uh, it'll put a little more death nerditry in your life and gives me an opportunity to cover stories that don't fit the theme of the main episodes or stories that I wouldn't usually cover in main episodes. You know, I try to avoid covering famous serial killers, anything that has a Netflix documentary or 2020 special, mass shootings, drug overdoses, anything that's been covered by a dozen other podcasts and etc. on the main shows. Uh, maybe we can explore those kind of things and other randomness on these minisodes. We'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm shooting for about 20 minutes or so on these, one story each episode, one and done. Uh, this also ties into the brainstorming I've been doing for Patreon ideas. Uh, this show has kind of hit that spot where, unless I can get some extra funds to beef it up with things like better gear, more free time to put into research, etc., I'm doing what I can on my own with no funding, so any improvement at this point, beyond improving myself as a host, which I will always need work at, will require monies, so at some point I've got to get a Patreon going. And as such, I need to start offering something others might consider paying for. And these mini-episodes could end up being part of that, uh, depending on how well these first few were received. Uh, I wrote three in a row and was originally going to release one every other week. But since I've been so shitty lately about getting the main episodes out on time, I'm going to record all three of the first minis in one go, edit them, and put them up all at one time. So whenever you see this one go up, there should be two more coming right behind it. Uh, these minis won't impact the main episodes in any way. You'll still get them late every week, as is the norm for this show, and they will be the same length. This is just a little add-on, a little extra flavor in your earballs. Uh, no welcome to blah blah blah. If you're here, if you're listening, you know what we do here. You know I may offend your little ear holes with swear words and the gory details of people's organic machines being shut down in less than agreeable ways. And you know who I am, your host, Sick Grayson. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to drop these first three minis and then probably sometime this weekend or early next week, I'll hit you with the next full-length episode, The Death of Science, where we're going to talk about Rather than individual deaths, we're going to look at death itself. What does it take to be declared dead legally and medically? What can you do with your body when you die? That kind of stuff. And that's probably going to be a two or three part series. So I'm going to get the first part of that series to you next week. Uh, until then, uh, listen to these three minis. Uh, the first mini episode, we're going to talk about Rodney James Alcala. Uh, in between the time I scripted this episode and recorded it, uh, the team over at Fruit Loops actually did a two-part series on Rodney Alcala. I haven't listened to it yet because I didn't want it to taint my episode before I recorded it, but as soon as I'm done recording this one, I'm going to go listen to their two-part series, and I highly advise you do the same. That's Fruit Loops, F-R-U-I-T, Loops, uh, Serial Killers of Color. Really good show. If you're not listening to it yet, definitely go check them out. Uh, anyway, Rodney James Alcala. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's known as the dating game killer. That's right, in 1978, in the middle of his murder and rape spree, Rodney found time to be on ABC's dating game. Rodney James Alcala was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor on August 23, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. 
1951, his father moved a family to Mexico where he abandoned them three years later. Alcala, his mother, two sisters, and one brother left Mexico for suburban Los Angeles when he was 11. In 1960, Rodney joined the U.S. Army and served as a clerk until 1964 when he suffered a nervous breakdown and went AWOL, hitchhiking from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to his mother's home in California. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and discharged on medical grounds. It wouldn't be the last and only diagnosis he would receive. After being caught for his future crimes, psychiatric experts would diagnose him with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and malignant narcissistic personality disorder with psychopathy and sexual sadism comorbidities. After leaving the Army, Alcala graduated from the UCLA School of Fine Arts and later studied film under Roman Polanski. 60s California and Roman Polanski. Even before he's taken a life, this guy already has two ties, as loose as they are, to the Manson family. Alcala committed his first known crime in 1968. A motorist in Los Angeles called police after watching him lure an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro into his Hollywood apartment. The girl was found alive, raped, and beaten with a steel bar, but Alcala had fled. To evade the, the resulting arrest warrant, Alcala left the state and enrolled in the NYU Film School using the name John Berger. In 1971, he obtained a counseling job at a New Hampshire arts camp for children using the same alias, but spelled differently. In June 1971, Cornelia McCrilly, a 23-year-old TWA flight attendant was found raped and strangled in her Manhattan apartment. Her murder went unsolved until it was connected to Alcala in 2011. The FBI added Alcala to its list of 10 most wanted fugitives in early 1971. A few months later, two children attending the arts camp noticed his photo on an FBI poster at the post office. Alcala was arrested and extradited to California. By then, Shapiro's parents had relocated their entire family to Mexico and refused to allow her to testify at Alcala's trial. Unable to convict him of rape and attempted murder without their primary witness, prosecutors were forced to permit Alcala to plead guilty to a lesser charge of assault. Alcala was paroled after 17 months in 1974 under the indeterminate sentencing program popular at the time which allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrated evidence of rehabilitation. Less than two months after his release, he was re-arrested after assaulting a 13-year-old girl identified in court records as Julie J., who had accepted what she thought would be a ride to school. Once again, he was paroled after serving two years of an indeterminate sentence. In 1977, after Alcala's second release, his Los Angeles parole officer took the unusual step of permitting a repeat offender and known flight risk to travel to New York City. NYPD cold case investigators now believe that a week after arriving in Manhattan, Alcala killed Ellen Jane Hover, 23 years old, daughter of the owner of the popular Hollywood nightclub Ciro's and goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Her remains were found buried on the grounds of the Rockefeller Estate in Westchester County. In 1978, Alcala worked for a short time at the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter and was interviewed by members of the Hillside Strangler Task Force as part of their investigation of known sex offenders. 
tied into more murder history, man. I mean, this guy was everywhere. Although Alcala was ruled out as the hillside strangler, he was arrested and served a brief sentence for marijuana possession. During this period, Alcala convinced hundreds of young men and women that he was a professional fashion photographer and photographed them for his portfolio. A Times co-worker later recalled that Alcala shared his photos with workmates. I thought it was weird, but I was young and I didn't know anything, said one co-worker. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. I remember the girls were naked. He said he was a professional, so in my mind I was being a model for him, said a woman who allowed Alcala to photograph her in 1979. The portfolio also included spread after spread of naked teenage boys. Most of the photos are sexually explicit and remain unidentified. Police fear that some of the subjects may be additional cold case victims. In 1979, according to later trial testimony, Alcala knocked unconscious and raped 15-year-old Monique Hoyt while she was posing for photographs. In 1978, Alcala was a contestant on the ABC game show The Dating Game. Host Jim Lange introduced him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at age 13. Actor Jed Mills, who had roles in ALF, Seinfeld, Casino, Twin Peaks, Night Court, and more. Oh my god, I want to be that guy. Dude, he was in ALF and Twin Peaks and Seinfeld. Uh, anyway, uh, who competed against Alcala as Bachelor Number 1, later described him as a very strange guy with bizarre opinions. Alcala won a date with Bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw, who subsequently refused to go out with him because she found him creepy. So this guy wasn't a neighbor say he was totally normal and can't believe he was a killer. No, sounds like everyone who met this guy thought he was off. Criminal profiler Pat Brown, noting that Alcala killed at least three women after his dating game appearance, speculated that Bradshaw's rejection might have been an exacerbating factor. One wonders what that did in his mind, Brown said. That is something he would not take too well. Serial killers don't understand rejection. They think that something is wrong with that girl. So basically, like, did so many more people die because this chick wouldn't go out with him? Or did she dodge a very massive bullet? And you've got to be really weird if on the dating game, the chick that you won the date with won't go out on a free, all-expenses-paid date with you. Like, just think about how weird this guy has to be. Robin Samso, a 12-year-old girl from Huntington Beach, disappeared somewhere between the beach and her ballet class on June 20th, 1979. Her decomposing body was found 12 days later in the Los Angeles foothills. Samso's friends told police that a stranger had approached them on the beach asking to take their pictures. Detectives circulated a sketch of the photographer and Alcala's parole officer recognized him. During a search of Alcala's mother's house in Monterey Park, police found a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. In the locker, they found Samso's earrings. Souvenirs will get you caught every time. Is it worth it? Really? I mean, we, we see it all the time. These guys keep jewelry or panties or driver's licenses, and it's just a catalog of their crimes. I guess I get it wanting a memory as twisted as it is, but when you're facing life in prison or the death penalty, I don't really see it being worth it. Alcala was arrested in late 1979 and held without bail. In 1980, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for Samso's murder. But the verdict was overturned by the California Supreme Court because jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes. So the first trial went nowhere on a fucking technicality after this guy already received leniency in sentencing twice. Uh, 
His whole serial killer murder trial is thrown out over a technicality. This is the kind of thing where one jailer just needs to take dude out back and cave his head in with a brick and say no one saw anything. In 1986, after a second trial virtually identical to the first one except for omission of the prior criminal record, he was again convicted and sentenced to death. A Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel nullified the second conviction in part because a witness was not allowed to support Alcala's contention that the park ranger who found Samso's body had been hypnotized by police investigators, so the second trial goes nowhere. While preparing their third prosecution in 2003, Orange County investigators learned that Alcala's DNA, sampled under a new state law, matched semen left at the rape-murder scenes of two women in Los Angeles. Additional evidence, including another cold case DNA match in 2004, led to Alcala's indictment for the murders of four additional women. Jill Barcomb, aged 18, a New York runaway, found rolled up like a ball in a L.A. ravine in 1977, originally thought to have been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Georgia Wickstead, 27, bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. Charlotte Lamb, 31, raped, strangled, and left in the laundry room of a El Segundo apartment complex in 1978 and Jill Parento, 21, killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. All of the bodies were found posed in carefully chosen positions. Another pair of earrings found in Alcala's Seattle storage locker had residue that matched Lamb's DNA. During his incarceration between the second and third trials, Alcala wrote and self-published a book, You the Jury, in which he claimed innocence in the Samso case and suggested a different suspect. You can't claim innocence when you have a dead girl's earrings in your storage unit. He also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a slip and fall incident and for refusing to provide him a low-fat diet. Well, you know, health is important. It's harder to fry in the electric chair if there's no fat with which to fry, right? For the third trial, Alcala elected to act as his own attorney, which is never a good move. None of these psychos that ever try to play their own attorney ever get out of it. I mean, Ted Bundy, how well did that go? He looked like a fucking nut bar. He took the stand in his own defense and for five hours played the roles of both interrogator and witness, asking himself questions, addressing himself as Mr. Alcala in a deeper than normal voice, and then answering them. So this guy's trial was seriously him going, Mr. Alcala, where were you on the night of blah blah blah? Oh well, you know, I was chilling on the beach smoking a joint. During this bizarre self-questioning and answering session, he told jurors, often in a rambling monotone, that he was at Knott's Berry Farm applying for a job as a photographer at the time Samso was kidnapped. Well, then he must be telling the truth, right? No one would dare soil the good name of Knott's Berry Farm. He showed the jury a portion of his 1978 appearance on the dating game in an attempt to prove that the earrings found in his Seattle locker were his, not Samso's. Jed Mills, the actor who competed against Alcala on the show, told a reporter that the earrings were not yet socially acceptable uh, for men in 1978. I had never seen a man with an earring in his ear, he said. I would have noticed them on him. Alcala made no significant attempt to dispute the four added charges other than to assert that he couldn't remember killing any of the women. And if he can't remember it, then it didn't happen, right guys? Or, oh, if, if you get on a plane and you go to a uh, you go to a time zone that's uh, after the time you're in and then you kill somebody and get back on the plane and then go back to the time before it happened then it didn't happen either right 
As part of his closing argument, he played the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant, in which the protagonist tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill. Excellent choice of soundtrack for a murder trial. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? I can't tell if he's crazy or just retarded. After less than two days' deliberation, the jury convicted him on all five accounts of first-degree murder. A surprise witness during the penalty phase of the trial was Tally Shapiro, Alcala's first known victim, now a grown-ass woman. She can show up regardless of what her parents want her to do, right? Psychiatrist Richard Rappaport, the only defense witness, testified that Alcala's borderline personality disorder could explain his testimony that he had no memory of committing the murders. The prosecutor argued that Alcala was a sexual predator who knew what he was doing was wrong and didn't care. In March 2010, Alcala was sentenced to death for a third time. That same month, the Huntington Beach and New York City Police Departments released 120 of Alcala's photographs and sought the public's help in identifying them, in the hope of determining if any of the women and children he photographed were additional victims. Approximately 900 additional photos could not be made public because they were too sexually explicit. In the first few weeks, police reported that approximately 21 women had come forward to identify themselves and at least six families said they believed they recognized loved ones who disappeared years ago and were never found. None of the photos were unequivocally connected to a missing persons case or unsolved murder until 2013 when a family member recognized the photo of Christine Thornton, aged 28, whose body was found in Wyoming in 1982. As of September 2016, 110 of the original photos remain posted online and police continue to solicit the public's help with further identifications. After his 2010 conviction, New York authorities announced that they would no longer pursue Alcala because of his status as a convict awaiting execution. Nevertheless, in January 2011, a Manhattan grand jury indicted him for the murders of Cornelia Crilly, the TWA flight attendant, and Ellen Hover, the Ciro's heiress, in 1971 and 1977, respectively, using evidence gathered by then-ADA Alex Spiro. In June 2012, he was extradited to New York, where he initially entered a not-guilty plea on both counts. But in December, he changed both pleas to guilty, citing a desire to return to California to pursue appeals of his death penalty conviction. On January 7, 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced Alcala to an additional 25 years to life. Also, in 2010, Seattle police named Alcala as a person of interest in the unsolved murders of Antoinette Whitaker, along with another unnamed 13-year-old victim in July 1977, and Joyce Gaunt, 17 years old, in February 1978. And since we know he was in the state, he had a storage unit there, it could have been him. In March 2011, investigators in Marin County, California, north of San Francisco, announced that they were confident that Alcala was responsible for the 1977 murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lamson, who disappeared after making a trip to Fisherman's Wharf to meet a man who had offered to photograph her. Her battered, naked body was subsequently found in Marin County near a hiking trail. With no fingerprints or usable DNA, charges are unlikely to be filed, but police claim that there is sufficient evidence to convince them that Alcala committed the crime. In September 2016, Alcala was charged with the murder of 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton, who disappeared in 1977. In 2013, a relative recognized her as the subject of one of Alcala's photos made public by Huntington Beach PD, 
And this was the chick uh, who was found in Wyoming that we mentioned earlier. Her body was found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming in 1982, but was not identified until 2015 when DNA supplied by Thornton's relatives matched tissue samples from her remains. They had crossed paths during a trip uh, Alcala's parole officer permitted him to take from California to New York. Thornton is the first alleged murder victim linked to the Alcala photos made public in 2010. The 73-year-old Alcala was reportedly too ill to make the journey from California to Wyoming to stand trial on the new charges. He remains in California State Prison. Other cold cases were reportedly targeted for reinvestigation in California, New York, New Hampshire, and Arizona. And that is the abbreviated story of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer, a man so weird he creeped out everyone he ever met, most likely including Sharon Tate's ex-fiance, director, uh, statutory rapist, Roman Polanski, and treated his court cases like they were a fucking Bugs Bunny bit. Would I kill those ladies? You might, rabbit, you might. I mean, what the hell? This dude really sounds like a weirdo. I mean, if it wasn't for all the people he murdered, it would be funny. NoBetterDeath.info for all info on No Better Death. Updates, show notes, links to social media, links to where you can find the show or listen right there on the site. Whatever you want to know about No Better Death, it is there for you. Don't forget to tell your friends about the show and be sure to review, like, subscribe, share, tweet, whatever you do, wherever you do it. Stay tuned for the next episode. I am your host, Sick Grayson. Until next time, try not to die. <laughs>